Matthew 6, 6. Can we read it from the NIV, the nearly inspired version? It says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is, come on somebody, who is? Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. Tonight I want to talk to you on the, the topic of unseen significance. Unseen significance. Uh, we're in a series called Heroic. And as I began to kind of pray and, and meditate on what to kind of share around the theme of heroic, because the original title was going to be Real Heroes of the Kingdom, or Real Church Heroes, I think was another one. Uh, I began to, to, to realize that, that what real heroes look like is they are people that understand the significance of the unseen. They understand the significance of the unseen. The Bible says that which is seen is temporal, but that which is unseen is eternal. Therefore, uh, fix your eyes on that which is unseen. But can I just tell you that God is a God who operates in the unseen. We live in a world where, where there, is a, there is a collision, there is a, there is a war going on between two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. I would even go this far. In Genesis 11, it says, and the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. And it never talks about the end of Nimrod's kingdom. In fact, when we get to Revelation 17, we find that uh, the angel, one angel shouts to another and there's a trumpet blown and everything and there's rejoicing because Babylon has fallen. Babylon the Great. And so it starts with, with uh, Nimrod building Babel and it ends with this, this worldwide global empire, the great harlot, the Bible says, who sits on many waters that caused the entire world to be drunk on the wine of her fornications. She has fallen and there's rejoicing. And the kingdom of Babel and the kingdom of Babylon is the same spirit, it's one and the same. But it's interesting because both of them operate on a thing called fame. Nimrod said, let us build a tower whose top is in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad. When Lucifer was cast out of heaven, his dialogue was, uh, I will exalt myself. I will be like the Most High. I will sit on the Mount of Olives. And so we find from Cain all the way through the Scripture, there's this war going on and there's this, this pull that you and I face with a thing called fame. Fame. Fame is fleeting. Fame is temporary. Fame is what the world can give you. Fame comes and seduces young people, Jessica Simpson, Whitney Houston, Britney Spears, we see that, you know, my daughter watches Disney shows and she was once innocent, Hannah Montana. Now she's just a mess. Grew up in Christian homes, gifted by God to, to lead worship, to lead a generation into light. The devil sees that gifting. He sees that anointing and he knows just like with Jesus, he can, he can lead you into, into a wilderness and he can show you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and their splendor. And he can offer them to you if you just bow to him rather than bow your knee. If you use, it, use your gift for him rather than use your gift for... And it's amazing how many people trade their gifting for instant fame, instant glory, instant recognition and homes and you know gold and platinum albums and servants and you know, Hollywood movies and 
all the trappings of this world only to find that it destroys their lives. I've yet to see one of them, you know, flourish because the devil doesn't care about who he seduces. I, I took my, my eldest boy in May, I took him to England and we we're in a place called Sheffield. And uh, Sheffield is, uh, is a very significant town for us because Leanne's mama was born in Sheffield. I remember a few years ago, I was preaching in Sheffield and I'm talking to Leanne's mum on the phone, just saying, this, it just feels nostalgic. She says, well, I was born there. I said, where were you born? She said, Sheffield Hospital. And I could see Sheffield Hospital from my hotel room. And so I tried to burn it down. No, I didn't. And uh, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. But, uh, but it was, there was just something significant about, about being in Sheffield. But I said, to, I said to my boy, I said to him, hey, what do, what do you notice about the skyline, what's, what's the tallest points in the city? What's interesting about Sheffield is that one of the buildings, one of the churches was built in the seventh century. So, you know, it's not like, you know, America where we, our history really only goes back to the 1600s. Uh, here, all, going all the way back, the Saxons going all the way back to, to the seventh century built churches. And what was interesting is we began to look throughout the city, the tallest points in the city were the steeples of churches. It was the steeples of churches. And I said, if you were to go back 100 years in time and go all throughout uh, Europe, you would find that the, the tallest buildings were the church. The Bible talks a lot in the Old Testament about uh, the occupation of the high places. In fact, it's one of the things that God judges the kings on. You know, it says that Hezekiah was a great king, served the Lord with all his heart. However, he did not pull down the, the idols on the high places. He, he didn't turn over the high places to God. The, the Muslims know this, that whenever, whenever uh, Islamists take a territory, the first thing they want to do is they want to build a mosque on the highest point because they believe that whoever occupies the high place has dominance over the city. And so, so we find that there's a war. And it's interesting, Nimrod's language is, I will build a tower whose top is in the heavens to make a name for ourselves. So when you go to these cities where the, the church steeple is the highest, church represents man's trust in God. But if you fast forward to the 21st century, if you go to New York or you know, uh, downtown LA or San Diego or Sydney, Australia or New Auckland, New Zealand, wherever you go around the world, you'll find the tallest buildings are no longer the church. You'll find the tallest buildings are either banking corporations or insurance companies. And both of those represent man's trust in man. Man's trust in man or man's trust in mammon, but not man's trust in God. And so there's a war going on for this, for this planet. And so the world wants to offer you fame. It'll, it'll offer you, but fame is temporary. What God wants to, to give us is glory. Jesus said to the Father, He says, Glorify the Son with the glory that I had with you before the beginning of time and that I have with you for, for everlasting. Can I just tell you, the Bible says in Psalm 75 verse 6, that promotion doesn't come from the east or the west, north or the south, but God puts down one and exalts another. Promotion comes from the Lord. Promotion comes from the Lord. Jesus said this in John 12, 24. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will remain a single seed. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it will bear much fruit. Everyone say, say, everyone say unseen significance. So Jesus said that, you know, you can have a seed, whether it's an apple seed, an orange seed or whatever. This seed may have untold potential. This seed may even be bragging. I'm an apple seed. And I come from the big tree up on the hill. That's the biggest tree. That tree has borne more apples than any other tree. That's my daddy tree. That's where I come from. 
That's, and I've got potential. You, you, how many apples are going to be in me? You don't know. Unlimited. But there's trees and, and that, that little seed can pipe off about how awesome it is. But can I tell you, Jesus said, until that seed is actually willing to zip it.com, go into the soil and die, it will remain a single seed full of potential, full of promise, but it will remain a single seed. Therefore, it behoves the seed to submit to the processes of God. For the seed to reach its potential, for the seed to produce its potential, it has to surrender itself to the process of God. Can I just tell you that you are a seed? God sees you as a seed. That's why in John 15, He says that you and I should go and bear fruit. Well, seeds that bear fruit. In fact, you began as a seed. If you need some biology teaching this evening. You began as a seed, but God still sees you as a seed. But the worst thing that you can do as a seed is just kind of walk around never getting planted. Never sowing yourself in, never losing yourself in the music, the moment you own it, you better never let it go. You get just one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. This opportunity comes once in a lifetime. You better lose yourself. And so, so most people fear the soil. Most people fear testing and trials, and most people f- struggle with, with faithfulness. But they're the three areas where God works in the secret. He works in the secret of the soil, He works in the secret of the testing, and He works in the secret of faithfulness. See, can I just tell you, faithfulness can't be measured while authority is in the room. In the parable of the talents, authority had to leave the room in order to measure faithfulness. Anybody can work while, while the boss is there. Hey, I'm just just closing out that contract. And then as soon as boss is gone, let's see what my Facebook's saying. Let's post this little picture on Instagram. How many likes have I got for that post? See, anybody can be faithful when the boss is there. But it's when authority leaves the room. It's when you drive out of Avis with that renter car. Then we see just how much integrity you have. Anybody can be faithful. You're careful when you're waving to the guys you drive out and then, you know, look at the donuts. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing how we behave when authority leaves, but, but faithfulness can only be tested when authority is present. So we find that there are significant moments and I want to really quickly rattle through uh, these things. Jesus in the wilderness, we saw the devil takes him up to a high mountain shows him all the kingdoms and their glory and their splendor. And he says, all of these have been delivered to me. I can give them to whoever I like if you just bow down before me. In other words, if you just bow down here in secret, there's nobody else on this mountain. We don't know whether it's Everest or Ararat. We don't know which mountain, but it's a high mountain. And the Bible says that Satan took Jesus there by themselves. Nobody would have seen Jesus' compromise. Nobody would have seen it, but we would have all felt it. In fact, we would have all been lost. But the temptation was, do you really want the beating? Do you really want to go through the trial? Do you really want to go through the crucifixion? Do you really want to go through the rejection? Do you really, do you really know what's going to happen as they pluck the beard and they spit in your face? Do you, do, you, do you really want to, if you just bow here, I'll give you all of these. It's amazing, but, but, but Jesus knew something about unseen significance. 
He knew if he was to, to bow and compromise in that moment, then fast forward to where Jesus is now in Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples, can you pray with me? And they forsake him for sleep. They forsake him for their own comfort. And Jesus has to go on without them. And he's isolated and alone and he's looking and he sees clearly the cross and the crucifixion. Maybe the thoughts playing about bowing all those months earlier. But no, he knows he's got to go through the crucifixion. But because he said no then, he was able to say yes here. And the devil knows that those times of unseen are significant times. Those times when no one is looking are significant times. That there are times of testing in the soil. There are times of testing in the trial. And there's times of testing in faithfulness. I think of King David. King David has no idea that here's this guy, Goliath, nine foot nine. And no one in the army wants to fight him. David's not in the army. But when David inquires saying, how come you, y'all just standing around? How come somebody just don't go and kill this guy? They're like, have you seen this guy? He's almost 10 feet tall. And they begin to describe his armour and, you know, coat of arms and bronze javelins and everything else. And they make a big fuss of how awesome he is just to make an excuse. But he says, I'll fight him. When Saul hears that finally somebody said, I'll fight him, he summons, bring that person to me. When they bring him in, he says, ah, oh, ah. Oh. He says, you're not able to go. You're just a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. And then David said this. He said, let me just tell you about unseen significance. He says, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. I was just out there. Dad just would send me out for days at a time, just out into obscurity. And I'd look after my father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took one of the lambs from the flock, instead of just going home and saying, hey, Daddy, we lost another one. Not on my watch, bub. He said, when a lion or a bear took one of the lambs from the flock, he says, I went after it and I struck it and I killed it and I delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when I struck the bear, it rose up against me. So I grabbed it by its beard and I took out my tomahawk and I struck that thing down and I killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear and this Philistine will be just like that. The same God that delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear. See, he thought nobody was watching. There was no media. There was no television crews. There was no paparazzi. But how many people know that God, 2 Chronicles 16:9, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, searching for him whose heart is loyal, that on that person's behalf, God might show himself strong. Can I just talk about unseen significance? In 1947, a lady who barely reaches five feet tall stands on a platform as a train leaves the station. And as the, the, the steam engine and the smoke and everything settles, here's this skinny little lady standing there. She has this tiny little brown port with just a few pieces of clothing in there and that's it. Nobody knows that she's coming. There's no church that is supporting her. There's no church that has sent her. She's left a middle school, middle class teaching job. She's a, a nun in the order of the Sarito order, but she's left all of that behind because of the devastation that she's seen in Calcutta, India. In 1946, just the year before, the Muslim-Hindu wars were so devastating that the nation was divided, disunity. 
And she stands and she looks up and she says, God, you and only you. Nobody knew she was going to be there. It could have been easy for her to contract a disease and in three months be dead and we would never hear from her. It could have been easy for her to just starve. She had no provision. No church knew she was coming. That was 1947. 32 years later in 1979, she wins the Nobel Peace Prize. Within a decade, she's the front cover of Time Magazine as the Woman of the Year. Within just a few years after that, she's again front cover of Time Magazine. She's the Woman of the Century. Mother Teresa turned the world upside down, but it began with a moment of unseen insignificance. Can I just tell you, anybody can stand on a platform and anybody can perform when the spotlight's on them, when accolades are given them. But can you be faithful to what God has said you when there's no praise, when there's no performance, where there's, there's no support, where there's no financial provision, where there's no assurance, where there's no guarantee. In fact, God is looking for people who will step out without guarantee. We spent seven years in, in New Zealand and those seven years are years we would not exchange for anything. Were they easy years? They were everything but easy years, but they were shaping years. They were forming years. It was in, it was in the crucible of those seven years that we understood that, that we don't need anything but God. We don't need anything but God. God sent me to New Zealand. I'd never been in New Zealand before that. Didn't know anything about New Zealand. And I said, God, at least in Australia, I've got a little bit of traction. People know me here. He says, I'm, that's why I'm sending you there. I'm sending you to a place of obscurity. And I, I came to New Zealand with a preaching gift. And God says, yeah, you need to bury that right now. Because the pastor is the preacher. And you're going to serve the pastor. And you're going to learn how to administrate. Just between you and me, I'm administratively challenged. I have had to surround myself, Pastor Stacy. I've had to surround myself with people who can admit, thank God for administrative gifts. When I saw it was a gift in the Bible, I'm, that's one of the best gifts in the entire Bible, the gift of administrations. I'm good with vision, administration, not good. I couldn't have even organized a booze up in a brewery when I first got saved. I would, have, I would have messed that up. I would have stuffed it up completely. I wouldn't have had no idea how to organise it. Would have had none of, it would have been a mess. But I found that God sends me to New Zealand and it's not about preaching, it's about serving. It's about serving and it's about shaping and it's about me dying. Dying to my preaching gift, dying to my pride, dying to, to what I believe that my dream was. Doesn't he understand my dream? When's he gonna make room for my dream? What about my dream? And I had to die to all of that and I had to make my life about his dream. I had to make my, make my life about his vision. I had to make my life about his purpose. My job was to pour water on his hands, to refresh him, to bless him. Was it an easy environment? No, it was a toxic environment. There were times where you know, different people in the leadership would, would, would try and destroy out of jealousy and envy. And, and when they realized they couldn't get to me, they started going after Leanne. And there were many times I said, man, these people, these people don't deserve our loyalty, don't deserve our faithfulness. And Jesus is like, I didn't send you here because they deserve your faithfulness. I'm watching you to see whether you can serve because I'm worthy of your faithfulness. See, faithfulness is easy when everything's going well and you're loved and how you doing? Or oh, is that too heavy? Come on here, let me take it. Anybody can serve in that environment. But what about when you're treated unfair? See, Joseph is the prototype. Joseph is the prototype. Joseph has, has a vision of, of you know, the, the sheaves in the field bowing down to him. And he shares it with his brothers and they're like, you little punk. 
And so the next night he dreams another dream. I like how audacious he is. But this time the sun, the moon and the stars bow down. He shares it at dinner. It's like, guys, the dream, another dream. And he shares it and his dad's like, are your mother and I really gonna bow? Really? Your mama and I? Get to your room. And and so, so Joseph has a dream. The next day his brothers plot to kill him. So they lure him out and they throw him into a pit. But Reuben, because he's the oldest, he says, we can't kill him. He's our flesh and blood. Let's sell him. <laughs> so they sell him to the Ishmaelites. And so he, he ends up going down to, to Egypt where he's auctioned off and he becomes a slave in Egypt. This is interesting because when you read in the book of Revelation, the Bible says, and, and the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, was handed a scroll, was handed a prophetic word, was handed... Like, like Scripture from heaven. And the angel said to him, eat it. And as he ate the scroll, he said it was like honeycomb. It was sweet to his mouth, sweet to his taste. He says, but as I, as I swallowed it, it became bitter in my stomach. Most Christians, when it becomes bitter, spit it out and retract from the call. See, what God does is He gives you a vision and a dream and a sweet He gives you a vision and a dream. He gives you a calling and anointing and it is so sweet when you see it. But then the process of God causes it to go bitter. The process is the crucible. The process is the anvil. The process is in the fire. And He brings you out and ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. And it's bitter in those moments as God is shaping you. It's bitter in the desert. It's bitter in the wilderness. It's bitter in the persecution. It's bigger, bitter in the trial. It's bitter in the testing. But it's where God is shaping you. So Joseph, Joseph is told, get up there and run my bath by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's away on a business trip. So he goes up and he runs the bath. She comes in, she's already undressed. She's like, Joey, lie with me. He says, I'm not, I, I don't like lying. I, I tell the truth. She says, no, no, no. Come, come sleep with me. He says, it's the middle of the day. I'm not even tired. The Bible says she tries to seduce him. He refuses. She grabs him and he runs and leaves his coat in her hands. When she realises he runs out of the house screaming, she's like, rape! Because, you know, it looks like rape when she's holding his clothes. Joseph is a, is a, a type of Jesus. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus. Pontius Pilate, when he's interviewing Jesus, says, don't you hear all these accusations? Say you nothing to defend yourself? And he marveled that Jesus was silent because Jesus didn't come to defend himself. Joseph knew he could have defended himself. If he would have defended himself, she would have perished. The penalty for adultery for a woman in Egypt is stoning and hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Joseph said nothing and ends up in prison. He goes to prison falsely accused. He goes to prison for a crime he did not commit. He is now a registered felon. He is now a registered sex offender. He is now somebody who has 
been found guilty for attempted rape and he is in a prison. But this is what the Bible says about Joseph in the prison. Joseph understands unseen significance because while he's in the prison, the Bible says, and the Lord was with Joseph and Joseph served the master of the prison. So much so that the master marveled at Joseph's faithfulness and put Joseph in charge of the entire prison. He is in a prison. It's not like today's prison. They didn't have color TV and, you know, workout benches and all that kind of stuff and, you know, a little rec yard. He was in a prison with lice and human sewer and rats and, and you know, Middle East stinking hot during the day and freezing cold at night. And, and here is Joseph and he looks like he's abandoned, but he understands something about unseen significance. He understands unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it will remain a single seed. But if it can die, if it can lose itself in anonymity, if it can, if it can experience the death to its dream, its death to its ambition, its death to, death to its own self, being able to make this dream happen. If, 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 if he could just die to himself, then what God resurrects, no man can shut down. No man can kill what God resurrects. And so he's in a prison and he's faithful. When Pharaoh is looking for somebody to, to make his, his right hand, make his GM, make his VP, he looks no further than this man in this prison who is faithful, even though he's got a prison record, even though he's guilty, apparently, of attempted rape. Pharaoh's own words, is there any other man in the entire kingdom that has a spirit like this man? Can I just tell you, you may be falsely accused, you may have been put down, you may have been betrayed, you may have even been labelled or mislabeled wrongly you may have felt injustice or suffered unfair trials but can I just tell you God is just looking he's just watching can you be faithful in your season can you understand the season of unseen significance because God is watching you he's watching to how you respond he's watching can you be for anybody can be faithful when eyes are on them one of my favorite stories and I'll finish with this is is uh I, I love 1 Chronicles 11. 1 Chronicles 11 uh, talks about the catalogs, the mighty men of David, and it talks about the 30. And, uh, you know, chief of the 30 is, you know, this Beniah who, you know, lifted up a spear and killed 300 in one day and fell into a pit on a snowy day, snowy day only to find a lion and kills the lion. He crawls out of there. He fought a nine foot giant Egyptian with no spear, wrested the spear off the Egyptian and killed him with his own spear. Beniah. Guy's a flipping legend. Then you got Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, who, who stands himself in the midst of a field full of lentils. I mean, who likes lentils? Nobody. But because they belong to God, he's like, I think I'm going to preach on him in one of the heroic sessions. He just stands, because it's not about the, the, the lentils, it's about the principle. Devil, I don't care if they're lentils, you ain't getting Jack deadly from my life. <laughs> this is Masara. And you killed my father, prepare to die. I'm not sure if they, but, but it, goes through, it, goes through the, it goes through the 30. It goes through the 30. If you read through the 30, there are 30 listed. But then the Bible does this. God adds somebody. God adds Uriah the Hittite. David is bragging about his 30. And then God says, yeah. Oh, you want to brag about these guys who killed and did great exploits? Let me tell you, David, who I'm putting into your 30. I know he's number 31. But let me tell you, he is equivalent with these top 30. David had 400 mighty men, but 30 ruled over them. And, and God says, yeah, I'm adding his name to the list, Uriah the Hittite. 
Who was Uriah? Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the the woman who, at the time when kings were meant to go out to war, David decides he's going to stay behind. Joab's got it. The Bible says he goes up onto his rooftop and he looks down and he sees in the moonlight a beautiful woman bathing on her rooftop. Thinks, wow, she's a bit of all right. He summons one of his servants and says, who is that woman? They said, oh, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. He says, I'll bring her up to the kingdom. She's the wife of, I just want to talk. Sure you do. It's very awkward for her. She's summoned by the king. He's pushing, he's advancing, he's pushing. Finally, she can't say no anymore to the advances of the king. She ends up sleeping with King David while her husband is out fighting the war for the man that he's serving. He lies with Uriah's bride, Bathsheba. Gets even worse, she falls pregnant. David thinks, my God, I've got to do something. She's pregnant. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll bring the husband home. I'll bring the hu- he's been out at, out at war for months. When he comes home, first thing he's going to want to do, be intimate with his wife, brings, brings him home, says, hey, Uriah. Uriah bows before the king. What an honor to be in your presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that. Good on you, man. He goes, why don't you go home? Spend some time with your smoking hot. I mean, your, your, your lovely wife. Lovely wife. Uriah stands and looks at him and says, Far be it from me, king, that I should do such a thing. How could I enjoy the warmth of my wife's embrace? How could I caress her bosom when my fellow soldiers are out there spilling their blood on the battlefield? Far be it from me that your servant would do such a thing. And he bows before the king. David orders a decree. He says, you go and sleep with your wife. He refuses to do it. The next morning they open the palace door and there is Uriah asleep on the steps of the palace. David can't believe it. So he says, I know what I'll do. I'll get him drunk. If I get him drunk, that's all you got to do for a man. Oh, he can resist. He can have self-control until he's inebriated, until he's intoxicated. So he says, come and dine with me. He keeps filling up his wine goblet. Oh, that's enough, king. No, don't be silly. Move your hand. Keeps filling it up till, till Uriah is intoxicated. He says, now go home and sleep with your wife. Go home and sleep with your smoking hot wife. The Bible says day after day, Uriah refuses to go home. Instead, they find him asleep on the front step of the palace. Finally, David is realizing, my God, she's pregnant. The baby's growing in the womb and he won't go and sleep. He's got so much stinking integrity. Oh, I hate when integrity gets in the way. And he's pacing up and then he realizes, I know what I'll do. And he goes into his, his office. He pulls out the royal quill. He gets out a scroll of papyrus and he begins to write. Begins to write furiously. And then he rolls it up and he gets his, his king's signet ring and he dips it in the hot wax and... He says, bring me Uriah. And they bring Uriah in. Uriah bows before the king. He says, here, take this scroll and go and give it to Joab, the commander of the army. Uriah feels so honored. You're trusting me with this. I'll get it there. So fast, your your highness. And he stands and he runs. It's a three-day journey. He does it in less than two days. He doesn't give sleep to his eyes. He runs. He runs through the night. He runs through the day. He's exhausted. The sun beating down on him. His lips are chafed. He's exhausted. And he finally, he finally staggers in and, and he hands the scroll to, to, to Joab as he collapses. And they give him water and they revive him. Joab takes the scroll. 
He opens a scroll and the scroll says this, in the heat of the battle with the enemy, promote Uriah to the very, very front. And as the battle intensifies and the enemy begins to fire back, remove all of the people around him to leave him vulnerable and exposed. Uriah has no idea that in his hand was his own death sentence. He has no idea that he was running with his own sentence of death. And so the next time Joab says, Uriah, you're in the front of the battle. He feels, my God, what favor have I found with the king? There, trust me, he goes forward in the front of the battle. And all of a sudden, shung, 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 spears and arrows are flying by. And then he looks and there's another, another call. It's a sound, but he's not familiar with this sound. And all the men are pulling back. All the men are pulling back. And he's out there by himself. Shing. An arrow pierces his liver. Shing, shing. Two more pierce him. Shing. A spear goes straight through him. And he looks around and he sees all the men are retreated. And he's just vulnerable. And the enemy's jeering and rejoicing. And he falls. And blood begins to spill. Blood is now coming out of the side of his mouth. And he sees it and his, his thoughts are my wife. His thoughts are my Bathsheba. He remembers, he remembers courting her. He remembers going to her father to, to offer for her betrothal. He remembers their first night. He remembers their honeymoon. He remembers the first time they were intimate. He remembers caressing her beautiful hair. He remembers the dreams that they had for a family of their own. And all of that is gone. And he thinks, maybe I should have when I was back at the palace. I could have just held her. I could have tasted her lips one more time. And then he shakes himself and says, my God, what am I thinking? I'm dying here for the greatest king in Israel. I'm dying for the greatest king in Israel. And he spills his life. And God says to David, oh, you dare list the exploits of these mighty men and leave this man out. This man trumps all of them for faithfulness. This man is not in your list of 30, but he's in my list of 30. He's in my list of 30 because this is faithfulness. You were not even for him. You were against him and you gave him a mission and assignment and he didn't give sleep to his eyes nor slumber to his body till he fulfilled what you said. Can you be faithful? In the unseen, i got to tell you, God is the God of process. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will remain a single seed. But if it can fall to the ground and die, it will bear much fruit. The reason we have connect, grow, serve, lead is because it's not just about making church happen on a weekend, although that's a byproduct. It's not just about, well, you know, we've got to get people to do something. It's not about that. It's about the fact that I know that as you and I serve, as we find our serve, as we find a place where we can be faithful, the eye of God can begin to come on the unseen. See, you don't know. You don't know the story. Half the time, we don't know the story of the person who shook your hand at the front door and made you feel welcome. Behind the smile, you don't know the battle. You don't know the war. You don't know that their, their home is in foreclosure. You don't know that their marriage is hanging on by tender hooks. You don't know that they just got a diagnosis from the doctor saying this could be terminal. We need you back for more tests. And yet they stand on the front door of church and they shake your hand and they make you feel welcome. And you don't even understand the battle. But can I tell you there is a God in heaven 
heaven, a God of unseen significance who sees the sacrifice, who sees the struggle, who sees the warfare and says, this is one that I can elevate. This is one that I can promote. This is one that I can raise up. This is one that I can give glory to. It's called unseen significance. 